Welcome to the Fab Lab Maker Hub podcast. I'm Stuart Lorne and I'll be your host on this new series where each week we talk to designers and makers, artists and inventors who in some way use digital fabrication tools and processes in their work and business. I explore the stories of how they got started, the pros and cons of using digital tools and how technology has helped them develop their unique products. Plus, we get insights into how the COVID-19 situation has shaped their current and future plans for their businesses. And spoiler alert, it's not all doom and gloom. This podcast is brought to you in conjunction with the Upper Shannon and Erin Future Economist Project, which covers the geographical area of counties Leitrim, Cavan, Longford and Roscommon. The aim of the project and this podcast is to inspire individuals, businesses and communities to proactively assist with the economic development of this region and to provide opportunities to develop new ideas and innovations through using digital fabrication technology. The Future Economies Project is a joint initiative between the local county enterprise offices, ESB and Bordner Mona. Okay, I'm delighted to be joined on the Fab Lab Maker Hub podcast this week by Ed Devan. Ed has a company called Soniform. Ed is describing himself as a sound artist and uh, instrument builder. Hi, Ed. Hello. Is that an accurate description? <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it, f- for right now it is anyway. Um, I, I've actually been spending more time making videos in the last few months than anything else, but uh, yeah. I still that has been uh, part of instrument building activities because that's what I'm mostly doing is showing people how to make instruments. And then that obviously ties in with sound art as well, which is a the way I use it um, is a deliberately kind of vague term. I, I think generally it is quite a vague term because it's such a wide field. So for people that um, don't know your work, um, what could they expect to see from um, from an Ed Devan uh, exhibition or, or workshop or installation? Well, um, if it was an installation, so that that's kind of uh, a lot of my kind of larger commissions would be based in art um, art muse- galleries or um, you know on public exhibit. They are for the most part uh, interactive in nature, so they incorporate interactive electronics and actuators, things that will, you know, like mechanically move something to, to make a sound generally. Yep. So in that regard, they kind of have a sculptural element to them because obviously they have to, when you're dealing with mechanisms and buttons and things, you've got tactile surfaces that take form, um, you know, that need to be held in space, that need to be constructed in some way. So that's kind of where I'm saying about the the general term of sound art. A lot of what I do is actually design and building structures and that generate noise of some description. Yeah, yeah. Trying to think like an engineer, really. So, um, so yeah. Generally, when I'm making sound installations, what I aim for is to involve the the visitors or the the public, whoever's uh, viewing the piece. I I try and involve them as active participants in a creative, collaborative uh, experience. Because often there'll be people visiting a gallery that are kind of standing near an exhibit who don't know each other. And uh, it's interesting to see if one person interacts with the piece and then somebody else who they don't know interacting with it, then they're both uh, creating sound through the same piece, through the same medium. Uh, In effect, they're kind of communicating uh, through my system 
Um, so I'm really interested in sort of exploring that in, in different forms. Okay, that's that's really interesting. So what is your background? I take it your background is sort of music or, you know, or, or is it art? Like where did the interest in this come from, you know? Uh, through through music, um, I guess I kind of got serious about making music as a teenager, um, kind of going down the, the standard route of starting on guitar and um, being in a couple of pretty pretty terrible bands. <laughs> but uh, I think by, by virtue of the fact of being in some terrible bands with people who couldn't really play or just didn't have, they weren't motivated enough, it kind of led me down the path of, you know, wanting to hear the different parts to the the music that I was making. So I kind of by necessity got into electronic instruments like drum machines and synthesizers and sequencers and ways of recording basically. And that kind of, uh, that side of it, like music production, basically music production and sound design really, cause they're kind of two of the same thing, the way I do it. And that kind of led into, I suppose an ongoing um, engagement with music production and with kind of experimental audio practices. So, yeah, I mean, I, w- I would have spent most of my 20s producing music on a computer. What were you making your early days? Were you actually building instruments then or were you just kind of using what was available? When did you start kind of like developing your own kind of instruments to make noises? Uh, fairly early on. I mean, when I was, um, I think when I was about 16, I bought a guitar that the, the neck was kind of, cracked on it so it was you know uh it wasn't deemed to be uh have a very life long life ahead of it so i got it really cheap and um i kind of started playing it with a, a knife sharpener um you know those kind of bar serrated bar knife sharpeners oh yeah yeah as a result seeing um the band sonic youth kind of battering their their guitars with all sorts of implements i kind of went exploring through my through the, the kitchen and uh, all the different utensils and seeing what way I could kind of manipulate string. Yeah. Um, I found that the knife sharpener kind of gave me this sustained pitch rather than, you know, a, a guitar has to be strummed or plucked. So it's quite a short sound, but this will give you a very long sound, uh, more akin to a violin bow. And I guess that uh, the, the unsuitability of the guitar as a way of actually getting those sounds led me to figuring that I kind of needed to build something myself. Firstly, I, I approached a couple of uh, instrument builders and asked, you know, like, I want to make this thing. How much will it cost? <laughs> and the quotes I got were just outrageous. At the time, I was like, I'm not paying that. So I, don't, I don't have that. Like, what, you're crazy. Um, and I kind of, uh, in, in retrospect, that would have been the much cheaper thing to do, uh, get somebody else to build it. But what I did instead was I decided, you know, I'm just going to make this thing myself. When I got serious about it, about building my own instrument was, I think, 2007. You know, I'd made a couple of things before that, just uh, from bits of old tape machines and, you know, taking motors out and kind of messing around without knowing what I was doing. Um, So what was the first thing that you made that you were impressed with yourself and you thought, I can do this? What was the first creation that you went, this is great, I'm onto something now? Yeah, probably probably that first zither. uh, A zither is a type of instrument with strings that are stretched parallel to the body. So generally, they're kind of, they take the form of a box with strings on it, as opposed to an instrument like a guitar, which has a separate neck to a body. 
But yeah, essentially that, that instrument I made in 2007 was a fairly solid plank of wood with a few strings on it. I had to learn so much in order to actually make that, you know, like I had to, I had to buy all the tools. I'd never really done any woodwork. I, I've always been sort of a maker in some form or other, but I had never really concentrated my uh, attention on handicrafts until around then. Did you uh, study anything like that at school or in college? No, I, you know, I studied art in school and never did, didn't do any of the sort of engineering subjects, which I probably would have, I would have gained a lot from earlier on. But uh, in some ways it was kind of, I mean, I, I studied sound engineering. They had a kind of a practical electronics element to it, which, which has definitely stood to me. But mainly how I learned was through kind of realizing the different topics that I needed to focus on. And it took a long time, but I kind of, I attended night courses and, you know, part-time courses and things in, in woodworking, in metalworking, uh, electronics. I study, I basically kind of took a few months when I was moving to a, a place where I didn't have a studio. Um, I was doing a residency in Limerick and I had basically nowhere to, to work. So I decided I'd learn how to use Arduino which is a uh, kind of a programmable uh, electronics platform, which is very useful for making interactive art. Because I realized around that time that the direction I wanted to go in increasingly kind of relied on bridging the gap between the computer and the physical world. Was that your first kind of foray into the, the, the digital world or, or had you been sort of messing around earlier on? I think, I think the first time I'd used Arduino was 2010, and I didn't, I had said no idea. It just, it just burnt my brain. Like I couldn't, uh, I couldn't hack it. I, I, you know, I got a friend to um, try and figure out a, a very simple circuit uh, to trigger solenoids. That kind of piqued my interest, but I, I realized, you know, after kind of fiddling around with it, that I needed to take a, a much more systematic approach to learning how to program, like to understand what all those little brackets and commas and hmm functions and loops and all these things kind of what they actually do so did you get formal training or no just did, did you no just kind of jump on youtube <laughs> books youtube post-it notes you know like just literally writing writing down the name of a function and writing its definition learning it off by rote and then putting it into practice and i, su I suppose one of the issues with learning physical computing uh, which would be based around you know using arduinos or raspberry pis and electronics and actuators like motors and lights and stuff you, you kind of need to have quite a lot of that stuff to be able to even follow the examples online or in a book so i suppose what i what i've been doing ever since is kind of purchasing parts i've got thousands of parts now of different things that gave me that flexibility to put something into practice, you know, like to come up with an idea, figure out what I'd need, and then actually be able to build it here in my studio. Where are you based at the moment? Where is your studio? Uh, in Guidor in Donegal. So um, we moved up here in 2015 and I was fortunate to get a, a very um, spacious studio um, at a very reasonable rate. And... Um, you know, from before that, having had studios for years, but either in a kind of a shared environment, which I never found ideal, or in a really tiny, cramped kind of space, yeah. or just in places that were 
visual art studios that didn't really appreciate having uh, somebody like me making a lot of noise. <laughs> so the building I'm in has basically got no neighbors. It's brilliant. I'm, I can make any noise I want or I can make no noise at all. And uh, noise is not an issue. <laughs> You're just annoying the, the cows and the sheep. <laughs> yeah, well, the seagulls who land on the roof, I think they're the, the main people probably. Very good. And so the digital tools you use, you talk about the, you know, the physical computing, the Arduinos, like you say, you, you need to incorporate a lot of building elements in, into what you're doing. When did you start using or find out about kind of digital fabrication tools to sort of like help with that building process? Uh, I suppose when I, when I started doing the, the metal working course in around 2011, there was somebody on the course who was talking about 3D printers and I'd never heard of one before then, I think, um, or at least never kind of connected the dots as to how something like that could be of use to me. Um, and then kind of somewhat randomly, I came across a, a designer in Dublin who had a, a laser cutter that would kind of, you know, you could send her files and she'd uh, cut the things out for you and the materials she had. And so I kind of, I became fascinated with that Oh yeah, CAD is actually the other thing that I, I invested a lot of time in learning because I realized that for any of this, you know, well, to kind of back it up a bit, uh, for a long time I'd been using cutting edge digital tools for music production. And then to go from using the full power of a computer to using a handsaw and realizing the, uh, you know, oh, I don't have like a lifetime of experience doing this and it's going to, to get to to get to the point where I'm making the things I want to is going to take a huge amount of practice and you know just building up skill, which you know which I have done by this stage. But at the time I was thinking like there's got to be there's got to be a shortcut. Yeah, exactly. Like there's got to be you know I want that accuracy that I'm used to with sound editing. So when I found out about laser cutting, I was I was fascinated, but I also realized that. You know, I had some experience of using Adobe Illustrator for drawing, but that it wasn't really, it wasn't uh, as powerful as AutoCAD. So that's uh, Autodesk's kind of architecture software. And, you know, I did several night courses in that. I've actually taught people how to use that in 2D and 3D uh, since. So that'd be one of my main um you know main main tools really did you find that was a steep learning curve obviously you had the background in sort of like say digital audio tools so you were kind of used to refining a piece of work was it difficult to sort of like bend your mind around working in 2d and 3d within cad or or did that kind of come naturally I think, no, it didn't, I wouldn't say it came naturally. I think I did a FOSS course on 2D CAD. Um, I think it was like the, the level two or level three course. And it was two nights a week for, I think, like four or five months. It was quite long and, you know, three hours each session. So it was a lot of like just kind of doing that. And then and then I was putting into practice designing my own things uh, in between that. So I got a huge amount from the instructor, you know, who was... Uh, an architect who was just kind of unemployed because of the uh, the financial crisis at that time. Yeah. I'm sure there'll be plenty more coming up. But, uh, you know, it was, yeah, it was a fairly steep learning curve. I think it was less so than learning something like Arduino, which I think some people can just get programming. I think I, I can fairly intuitively understand geometry. You know, I can I can visualize things in my mind. I can draw 
and you know it was just a case of kind of learning off the different tools and the keyboard shortcuts and things to actually make drawing digitally as quick as trying to draw something by hand you know yeah so i was very interested in taking that kind of approach of how to optimize the use of the software in the same way that i was doing with with ableton and logic you know the music production softwares that if you know how to use a computer then you can definitely uh you can find ways of improving your workflow so yeah i took that approach um which is directly from music production yeah the CAD led you into realizing that you could take these these files that you were generating and then move on to the next stage, which is like the computer-aided manufacturing side. But it sounds like that kind of leap came a bit later on. A little later, I suppose what I didn't have at the t- you know, when I was when I was doing the, the CAD courses, I had access to that uh laser cutter in Dublin. And then when I moved to Limerick in 2013, I think, the, the Limerick Fab Lab, the School of Architecture Fab Lab uh, from UL was opening up. And I had at that stage invested in a small uh, CNC router, a small one that I got on eBay. had no idea how to use it. What was that for people that don't know exactly what CNC router is? Well, CNC is computer numerical control. So it's basically like a, a kind of a digitally controlled carving machine or cutting machine. Uh, the router part is a router is a tool that has a, a cutting bit. Um, you can get all different sizes for it, but it's a, a rotary tool. So it's kind of like a Dremel if you're, if you're familiar with that. Yeah. Um, but it's on a frame that moves around, uh, and that's can you know motors move the different axes, so uh, you know X, Y, Z, so left, right, back, forth, up, down. Yeah. Um, so you can be incredibly accurate with that. The materials I was kind of interested in working with were hardwoods, plywoods, um, and acrylic, and and circuit boards as well. Actually, um, although that kind of realization came a little later. Yeah, like I say, I didn't. I actually found learning CNC routing that was really difficult at first because I don't know if it, maybe I wasn't looking in the right places, but I didn't actually find it that useful for uh, the internet for kind of learning how to use my particular machine. There was just so much I didn't understand about the terminology, and then so I kind of yeah. when I heard that the the Fab Lab was opening in Limerick. This was like several months before it actually opened. I got in touch with them and kind of like just begged them to help me with my machine. And thankfully, the, uh, Michael McLaughlin, that used to kind of be the, the manager there, uh, right. came to my studio, helped me get the thing set up. And uh, that was great, you know. And then it was actually just like a five-minute walk from Fab Lab. So, you know, I took the time to learn how to use their larger machines, like the, the laser cutters and CNC routers and 3D printers. So it was really, it was really through the Fab Lab in Limerick that you kind of like got exposed to the whole sort of range of digital fabrication tools, and you were able to kind of find which ones were suited to what you needed to do. Really, yeah, essentially, because it was just just having that kind of access where you could just walk in off the street and just like a shop, you know, you could go in with a, you know a USB drive with some files on it and plug them into the machine choose what material you want, cut it out, there you've got your piece, uh, you know, pay a, a nominal fee. Like it was, that was a good thing about it as well. It was, you know, it's kind of affordable. Um, 
I guess because it was kind of backed by UL and uh, yeah. institutional support, but um, but as well the community that that kind of just blossomed around that. You know, there was all these different people like myself who were kind of working in isolation, who were aware of the kind of the wider maker scene, but who didn't necessarily have any social contact with others who were doing that. So it was great to actually meet all these people just kind of coming out of the woodwork from the local area yeah, and see what mad things they were, they were building or hoping to hoping to achieve. So what digital tools do you have in your workshop up in Gridor at the moment? And which ones are you finding you're getting the most sort of value from to to create the things you want to create? Um, I think the number one tool would be the laser cutter. Uh, I, I was successful in getting a grant from the local enterprise office and the Crafts Council of Ireland um, who were doing sort of a, a pilot scheme about four years ago, I guess. Yeah, I, I put in a successful uh, pitch and I got funded to to buy a quite a large uh, Chinese laser cutter. How big is it? It's uh, well, it's got a bed that's twelve hundred by nine hundred millimeters, or four foot by three foot, if you want to use that uh, method. Um, it's the exact same laser cutter that they have in NCAD in Dublin, where I used to work. So I bought it from the same company because I knew that company were uh, reputable, and you know, they, if you had any problems, they'd they'd help you. Whereas if you import directly from China, you don't have that same support. So yeah, even though that was a more expensive option to buy from the UK, it was definitely worth it. So in addition to that, I have I have a Formlabs 3D printer, resin printer, which I actually got a few years ago, and I don't really use that much because it's so expensive to to use. I mean, it, it's capable of making beautiful, uh, flawless 3D prints in really high resolution which is kind of useful for me for making parts for instruments that are kind of just, you know, they're, they're finished. They're just part of the aesthetic. But like I say, it's, it's really expensive to run. This year, I, I've, been, I've been involved in a science gallery Dublin project called Plastic. And one of the commissions was um, in Wexford County Council offices earlier in, in February. And in order to make the piece that I made for that, I needed uh, two 3D printers, like just the cheap um, filament printers. Yeah. Um, so they've actually been, they've been kind of, I, I, I was resistant to buying those kind of printers for a long time because it didn't seem to be good value for money for what I wanted and, and you know, the kind of results that you could get. But I've totally changed my mind on that. Like it's, <laughs> it's become such a cheap and reliable technology now that it's a no-brainer what printers did you get creality ender fives so they're just yeah. two exactly the same yeah um, the creality brand is uh, kind of synonymous with kind of like good quality but also good value as well we uh, we use them on our build a 3d printer courses they're great little printers to uh, kind of get your feet wet with 3d printing you know like say filament based 3d printing yeah, I just find it's it's good enough for the parts that I'm printing. A lot of it is kind of, it would just be a waste to use the resin printer because they're kind of structural parts that hold other parts together that aren't always visible. You know, they're, they're quite functional elements in the design a lot of the time. So do you prototype a lot before you actually arrive upon the, the finished piece and has using the 3d printer kind of like helped you do that um yeah i i will prototype a lot with the the laser cutter more so because it's just fast 
Um, yeah. And I guess as I've become better at using 3D CAD, so I'm using uh, Autodesk Fusion 360 uh, for designing things. What I'm doing more these days is spending more time on the actual digital design and kind of just thinking through, based on kind of real world experience, how different materials will react or how they'll join or how they look but to yeah generally it like to keep the prototyping pretty low obviously there's sometimes you print things or you cut things and they don't exactly fit they're too small or too big because of the, the actual tolerances of the machine that need to be adjusted but uh but yeah i suppose having said that my approach to making music would be quite experimental in that i will try ways of making sounds that are not guaranteed to be successful <laughs> in the same way i will do that structurally I'll, I'll try out things that you know use new techniques that i've i've learned about or thought about so yeah i mean i've i've, I've loads of i've loads of things like it, i suppose it's kind of um you know material-based research yeah so you have your 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 sculpture board, but then you have soniform what what was the idea behind soniform and how how did that kind of develop um, well, having, having gone through the local enterprise office courses, I did two different courses kind of uh, around the same time, maybe three, actually. I, I kind of engaged with them for about two years when I moved to Donegal. And it was partly because I wanted to take a more product design based approach to, to the work I was doing rather than a one off commission approach, if you know what I mean. So that if I was going to design something and make something that I was going to then sell because, you know, quite a lot of the, the stuff I've made have been one-off commissions for other musicians. I figured it would be it would be time better spent to develop something that could be made in a kind of a short uh, or small production run rather than a one-off. Yeah. So to take more time developing prototypes, but uh, with the, the hopeful payoff of selling multiple units of the same thing, which is then easier to, to make. Um, and in order to to give a home to that, I just wanted to kind of put a bit of distance between myself, my own practice as a musician or as a, an installation artist and the, the products that I could sell to other musicians. Really, the, the only product I have commercially available thus far is called the sound sniffer and it's a little um it's a pre-amplifier but basically what that is is a little box that you can plug a pair of headphones into at one end or you can plug into a recorder and on the other end you can plug in three different types of sensor so um a microphone similar to the one i'm speaking into right now which is kind of the least exciting of the three a contact microphone which is a a little disc that will pick up vibration surface vibration from different objects uh and a coil which is similar to what you'd find in a an electric guitar that will pick up uh, electromagnetic fields for example smartphones give off a huge amount of different sounds when you when you turn them into sound the energy that's coming off it uh is picked up by the coil and then you can hear all these different digital processes like you know the the radios and yeah. the, the screen and stuff making all these different sounds that you'd never hear with the human ear basically yeah because they're not sound you know it's it's energy that's yeah. transduced into sound through the the preamp yeah so i've i've sold them all over the world it's amazing uh, really how uh, 
how wide they've they've gone. So what was it, what was it like turning that idea into a kind of a business? Really, it was it was a natural progression. It was something that I've I've kind of always wanted to work for myself. Um, I I have worked for other organisations and uh, and generally when I'm working, I am working for other people in a freelance basis. But that idea of just having my own business was something that I. I knew I would do eventually. Yeah. And I suppose it just kind of then was the, like 2018 seemed like the right time to uh, to just register the business and make a website and a logo and things like that. Since then, I've been kind of busy with uh, with larger commissions and things like that, like work that will take up most of my time. So I have been developing things that I label as Sonyform, but as yet they're not released. They're, they're kind of for my own use, really. Um, mainly that takes the form of uh, circuit boards. So basically uh, a printed circuit board or PCB is a way of connecting different electronic components together uh, in, a, in a small space without loads of wires. And I've been interested in making them for as long as I've had a CNC machine um, because I realized that you could... You could etch the the traces or the the connections between parts with uh, a thin uh, etching blade. So uh, you know I explored that for a while, but um, realized the the kind of limitations of it. And then basically, it's become so cheap to get circuit boards made in China that it was kind of worth my while to invest more time in learning the the PCB design software Eagle, and then getting small production runs. Um, or you know, small batches of uh, circuits made in China. So, with the circuit boards you're making at the moment, you get those produced in China. Like, how does that kind of process work? It's really easy. Um, you basically you save the, the the board design as a certain type of uh, file, a Gerber file. You go to the websites. There's loads of different manufacturers. I use uh, allpcb.com. They used to have free shipping. I think that's the main reason why I still use them, but. I know that they they work, uh, they do a good job. So you upload the file to there, you specify how big it is and you press buy. And then a week later or less, sometimes it comes all the way from China in a DHL delivered box. So the fact that it's that quick, like a week from China is just crazy. It is crazy. And also cheap. It's It kind of makes sense to do it that way. Like I up until two years ago or some two or three years ago i was using the laser cutter and i was spray painting um bare copper board and then laser etching off the paint and using chemicals and stuff to to etch the circuit boards which is just really messy and doesn't always work very laborious yeah it takes the kind of rote work out of making something that that you don't really get a lot of joy out of making exactly because it was it was a bottleneck i think and it's kind of a general way in which I work, which isn't maybe the best way of working, but I will take commissions as a, a way of pushing forward my practice technically and, you know, in terms of uh, the level of ambition sometimes. So where do you get your commissions from? Like, how do you go about seeking out these opportunities? Sometimes they're open calls. Most of them are open calls. I've done a, I've done a couple for the Science Gallery and some of them are kind of random enough. Sometimes people come to me and they say they want a particular thing. I'm I'm doing a an installation for Galway 2020, which came about through basically having made the the sculptural piece for Wexford County Council's version of the the Science Gallery touring ex- exhibit, the plastic exhibit. Yeah. 
that came about from a conversation I had with one of the invigilators who happened to be also working on this Galway 2020 project, who put in a good word for me with the, the project manager, an uh, artist that was kind of leading the, the project. And that led to a commission that's kind of been a, the bulk of my work so far. Yeah, kind of, it, it varies quite a lot. I'm always on the lookout for commissions and opportunities that might be in concert with my own interests. Okay. You know, that obviously has the knock-on effect of putting projects like the circuits I'm designing for Sony Forum on the long finger because, you know, I get a commission and then that's suddenly like four months gone. Yeah. Solely working on that. So I guess the big question is like you, you talked earlier about um, pieces being kind of interactive and people standing next to each other. How has the lockdown and uh, COVID-19 kind of affected your work? You said you're, you're making a lot more videos these days. <laughs> yeah, um, it's, it's actually had a, a very positive short-term <laughs> effect anyway in that all of my work for the last few months has been in studio. I haven't had to go anywhere. It's brilliant. Before that, I was just every week I'd be away for, you know, a couple of days a week at least, sometimes weeks at a time. And I'm sure there'll come a day again where that is the case. But yeah, a lot of the a lot of the projects that I had sort of lined up initially got postponed or cancelled. And then the organizations involved figured out ways of doing them through uh, either through kind of live webinars through Zoom or similar or else just making a video, commissioning a video that would be put up, launched on a particular day. I don't know how much reception those get in in yeah. comparison to an actual flesh and blood face-to-face uh, workshop. Because it's a more permanent record, I, I guess. It's, it is it is advantageous in some ways, actually. Maybe a gallery exhibition would last, you know, a month or so, whereas, a, you know, the video will always exist. <laughs> yeah, my approach to making the videos is to use them as to, to satisfy the the requirements of the brief, like whoever's commissioning me to make the video, but also to become part of a sort of a, a, a library of resources which I can refer to yeah. in other workshops or even that I could use in a, in a face-to-face workshop, you know, to explain theory. I could just play a video of something that explains it maybe better than yeah. I would face-to-face. So um, is there any new projects or new skills that you're hoping to get going on in the near future you seem to be a sort of a serial skill acquirer (laughs) yeah um i I guess metalworking um for that project that i'm building for the galway 2020 it's an outdoor sound installation that is powered by the rain so that's got several requirements that i wouldn't usually have to deal with the weather and moisture being the the main ones so i've had to i've been kind of yeah i've been playing around with sheet metal and i'm going to hopefully learn how to to weld and you know i hope that that will kind of lead on to more large-scale uh public commissions that kind of work where that you know the kind of more permanent things okay everyone's going to be thinking how does the rain power <laughs> this sculpture <laughs> uh well through through a number of ways there's there's a water wheel which will so it'll, it'll basically take the runoff from a roof of the you know from a, a gable of a building yeah and then the water will interact with the, the parts of the sculpture in different ways so there'll be multiple parts to this some of them will be pivoting beaters and things like that that are powered by water 
so when a, a reservoir fills up, then a beater will hit something and make a noise. Some of them will be directly amplifying the sound of the rain, so kind of upturned bucket drums. Okay. And and kind of ways, yeah, ways that have yet to be invented, I guess. I, I spent a good few months kind of developing prototypes for it, and I'll be building the actual installation in October. So um, we're still kind of figuring out the exact site, so I haven't pin down exactly the design yet until until we know exactly where it's going to go but okay um and we're, we're, is this uh semi-permanent or or permanent or what, what's the hope for it is it, it it'll definitely be up for a few months anyway um and then the hope is that it would be there for a few years anyway yeah um it depends on the the location again because there's a lot of uh, privately owned buildings that um rather than public buildings that we can use so yeah um yeah i don't know we'll just have to see what the, the reaction to it is and we just uh, hope that we don't have the driest winter on record that's all <laughs> well i mean that's kind of another thing to it it's it's you know in, in the time from when i was commissioned and it coincided with lockdown we did have a drought for yeah 14 weeks or something you know it was a really long time um and obviously that was that was foremost in my mind because at the time i was trying to develop pieces that are powered by the rain so i had to use watering cans and things and then there was a a house pipe (laughs) ban yeah exactly yeah so uh that that didn't really help but i suppose it's the the point of it is that it'll amplify the absence of rain if you know if you don't hear it for a few days you're gonna probably not do anything i don't know (laughs) the wind will activate it yeah it will see if the wind activates it well you could make it interactive by getting people to uh, pour buckets of water over it yeah people throwing things at it Um, just getting back to the kind of the, the digital tools for, for anybody that is listening and, and is kind of contemplating using digital tools in their art or in their work or whatever, what would you say? Would you say jump in or, or what, what tips would you, you give to kind of get started? Um, I would do a bit of research first, find out if, you know, say if you're a craftsperson and you're interested in how the digital tools of some description might benefit you in your practice, then find out what other people are doing just with a, a Google search. You know, say if it's ceramics, like ceramics and laser cutting, something like that. Uh, I would engage with 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 you guys in the, the Fab Lab, um, if possible, or, or similar Fab Labs in if, if there's one in your area or makerspace. I, I think becoming familiar with what the machines can do or what the the software can do first of all is really important. Uh, you, you know, it's good to have realistic expectations of what a particular tool can do. Three uh, D printers are great for certain types of thing, but terrible at, at other things. You know, so yeah, just just knowing. I think that that's where the the fab lab. I, I know you, you might the doors might be closed at the moment, but places like that are great because you can actually just go in and see the machine working and you can see things that it has made you can perhaps talk to people who have more experience with that and can kind of point you in the right direction so i'd say yeah do that first do a bit of research i would also say to anyone interested in using laser cutting or cnc routing or 3d printing they're kind of useless unless you know how to design something unless you can draw uh, you can certainly get models and plans and things from the internet. So if you've just a one-off thing you want to build, maybe that's appropriate. But if you want to in any way modify that or do something custom, you're better off spending the time learning one or other CAD package. And there are several. I mean, AutoCAD is, yeah. has been around a long time and it's very complex 
more complex than you would need for a lot of things. So yeah, I'd say I'd say that invest some time in actually learning how to use a Dine software first. That's good. Good advice. Um, where is the best place for people to find out about your work and if they want to get something commissioned or look into some of the products that you're making? I, I use Instagram probably the most actively. Uh, my website, uh, I have two main websites of eddevan.com and sonnyforum.com. I'm not the best at keeping them up to date. Um, they have general contact information and kind of portfolio work on them, but my most up-to-date and sort of active account is instagram i post a lot of things up there that are kind of works in progress or you know information about projects that i have coming up a lot of the time i'm using it as a sort of a portfolio when i'm talking to somebody about a commission or you know like a project whatever i can say look on instagram oh yeah i tried something like that like three years ago have a look at this post you know, that kind of thing. It's just a useful repository for me to actually point to specific details of the work that I do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's uh, Instagram, Ed underscore Devan. I can send you on the link anyway, so you can put it in the, the description. Yeah, we'll put all that info in the uh, podcast notes and stuff. So that's great. So listen, Ed, thanks for joining today. It's been fascinating and I'm going to definitely dive in and check out some of those things. And uh, thanks again. Yeah, thanks, cheers. All the best. Cheers. Hope you enjoyed that episode of the Fab Lab Maker Hub podcast. You can contact us via email at info at fablabmh.org. Also, we have a Facebook page, FabLabMH, and a Twitter account, FabLabMH. You can get in touch with us through any of those means. Our website is www.makerhub.ie. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe, tell your friends, and thanks for tuning in. Since I saw you last, since I saw you last.